and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, uh, an issue that we've been tempted at times to avoid, Richard, the 2016 presidential election. And I bring this up this week because your most recent column for defining ideas took the form of an open letter to Donald Trump. Probably not much of a surprise to our listeners that it was a fairly critical one. And I'd encourage our listeners to read it in its entirety, but I want to spend today exploring some of the issues that you've embedded therein, especially some of the legal ones. So um, let's start here. Donald Trump, as we all know, as I think he himself would cop to, is a pretty litigious Fellow, and, and he's responded to these allegations of sexual assault that have been directed at him over the past couple of weeks by insisting, amongst other things, that the New York Times retract its story. And Richard, you called his demands, and I'm quoting you here, one of the dumbest demand letters in the history of defamation law. Explain why it was so lacking. Yeah, I mean, this, first of all, it was a very short letter in which they said since these allegations were old, they could not be true. And secondly, they did not try to back it up in any way, shape or form by giving contrary evidence, which would suggest that it was wrong. The way in which you get retractions is to present other evidence which shows that these statements are false. Then if you continue to publish them as stand by Behind them, you establish the sort of actual malice that seems to be necessary in the case of public figures. Not very close. Mr. Trump is surely one of them. Um, uh, actual malice so that you could set it up. The other thing that happens is when you write a demand letter, what you do is you give the other side an opportunity to go on stage. And they could now mock and deride and berate you uh, in all sorts of ways. And the letter that was written by the general counsel of time did exactly that. He took this as an opportunity opportunity to bash Mr. Trump another time. And so why would you ever want to set yourself up for another distraction? Uh, what you do in these particular cases is you may well say that the New York Times is biased, prejudiced, uh, scurrilous in all sorts of ways, but you don't ask them to retract in any kind of a formal sense. What you do is you try to show where it is that the bias has come out and let the audience judge for themselves. And this is over and over all this problem. Donald Trump's worst enemy is named Donald Trump. He keeps doing the kind of dumb things that no professional um, should ever be caught doing in the midst of a presidential campaign. Even if it were not a campaign, it would still be a highly dubious strategy on his part uh, to undertake. Uh, if you go back and you look at the litigation brought by public figures against newspapers, uh, it has virtually come to a standstill in the last 25 years. There were many such cases in the 80s, Westmoreland, Sharon, and countless others. And they all came up short, and people realized that every time you sue a newspaper, they mount a full-score defense, and they constantly repeat the libel, and a completely immune from any kind of challenge. And so it's just best for you to lay off. I mean, he just was not thinking at all. So this was profoundly stupid. One of the areas where you've criticized Trump is on the issue of executive power, where you think that his conception of presidential power is broader than the Constitution allows. And you signed on, Richard, recently to an open letter of constitutional originalists opposing his candidacy. Now, I know by dint of our friendship over the last several years, you're not generally a big fan of signing on to these sorts of open letters. So what was it here that compelled you to participate? 
Well, I mean, one of the ironies, the biggest hesitation I had was not about the content about the letter, but whether or not I should regard myself for these purposes as an originalist, because I tend to be fairly idiosyncratic in my mode of constitutional interpretation. And as I've told you to a fair number of chuckles over the year, I'm most heavily influenced on interpretation by Roman doctrines, which antedate the Constitution by about 2,000 years, maybe a little bit less. Uh, So it's not as though I'm in that camp. But on the other hand, I'm certainly not a living guy who says every time you think something's nice, what you do is you read it into a helpless document. So I have my differences with them. Uh, But the basic point here is the text does matter. And one of the things that's so clear about Donald Trump and which gets most of the originalists upset is he does not seem to believe in separation of of powers and checks and balances and seems to want to imitate, if not exceed, somebody like Barack Obama, who's unilateral. I think is really very, very dangerous. And you have somebody out there kind of saying, well, there's a president who is my role model and his name is Vladimir Putin. Uh, That's probably an exaggeration. But one sort of understands that you get very, very dangerous. And what's so terribly upsetting about all of this is the list of people who signed it are quite distinguished. And many of them are exactly the kind of people that a sensible Republican administration would want to put in relatively high positions in the Justice Department because their views are fairly sober and very very careful, and they don't have any of the sort of intellectual adventurism that is associated with Obama and company. Uh, So this is yet another illustration where a man who certainly has enough to say against Hillary Clinton, which I make very clear in the letter, manages to stub his own toe for no particular reason. He is his own worst enemy on some of these things because he gets off message. He can maintain the enthusiasm for his groups if he just cleaned up what he wanted to say and didn't pick these pointless fights with people. Uh, which only allow the opposition to hog the headlines and to put them on to the back pages. So let's put that executive PowerPoint into a broader context for a moment, Richard, because as you mentioned a moment ago, a lot of critics, yourself included, have been very tough on Barack Obama on the same issue of executive overreach. There was also – there was a fair bit of that aimed in George W. Bush's direction during his presidency, although there most of it had to do with foreign affairs, whereas Obama has primarily been on the domestic side. But let's just assume for a moment that Trump loses and that Hillary Clinton is the next president of the United States. We don't have much evidence that she wants to narrow the scope of executive power. So at that point, how likely is it in your judgment that there isn't any going back, that we are sort of stuck with this capacious understanding of presidential power for the foreseeable future? I guess what I'm really asking you is how long does this continue before it's irreversible? Well, I would hope that it is irreversible. It is reversible right now, but you know, I'm kind of gloomy. It's it's not just executive power; it's also congressional power. The entire system of governance in the United States depends upon a schematic outline, which talks about three branches, gives them powers, and then puts checks and balances. Uh, but the whole system depends upon what one loosely calls comedy, a spirit of cooperation, in which everybody realizes that for the long run, you don't push whatever options you have to the limit in order to make sure that the other guys don't do the same thing. It's like putting your best foot forward. They put their best foot forward, and it narrows the gap that you have between people. Much of this actually started on the congressional side where you had systematic efforts to block the nominations by simply deep-sixing them. And, you know, Bush had the option to 
exercise the nuclear option and to say, I'm going to do this by a bare majority. He didn't do it. But when the shoes were turned, the Democrats did that for everything but the Supreme Court. That's the end of comedy. Uh, What Bush did is he issued some signing papers, which were very circumspect, maybe not correct, saying, I think that this particular provision, if construed in this particular way, interferes with my powers as commander-in-chief. And this was a sensitive issue because he made some rather outlandish demands as commander-in-chief, saying, in effect, he could disregard things like the Geneva Convention or clear congressional mandates. I thought he was wrong, although the particular signing statement stuff were much more limited than all that. Obama has taken this to an art form, in which any time he thinks that Congress is obdurate, he will find some way in which he can use a unilateral executive action to achieve his end. And even in those cases where it turns out he's really pushing the envelope, like in labor relations, he doesn't do it directly, uh, but the way in which those laws are interpreted and enforced is just a constant drumbeat on one side of the issue. So the Democrats have gone really overboard. Now, if Hillary becomes president, Everything is going to depend upon who controls the Congress. She will do exactly what this particular president does if both houses are controlled by the Republican because every time they disagree with her, that turns out to be you know, obstructionism of the worst order. But if she has a Congress with her, she will not do that. Uh, she will essentially work through the Congress in order to get whatever she wants and avoid the charges of illegitimacy. Um, and that will basically, A, improve her public standing and B, increase the prospects that whatever she wants to do will Will succeed if it's challenged in the courts or challenged after administrative rulings or something of the sort. So you can't really answer that question until you know what her distributions are. But if one thinks that there is in our good friend, Mrs. Clinton, a sort of a built-in sort of content, you know, a, a, a built-in a system of self-control and self-restraint, a, a kind of a balancing wheel, I don't think that's part of her. I think she will do whatever under the circumstances she thinks best. If she pushes against a Republican Republican Congress and the seats are then reversed, the Republicans will play tit for tat. The only way this could end is if the party who deviates from the traditional rules on comedy is the party that then restores them unilaterally. Because if you ask the other side to make the change, uh, then you'll get the situations where the Democrats bust the filibuster rule, the Republicans put it back in, and then the Democrats win again and they bust it again. And so you get two different sets of rules. Comedy is the only way in which you can create cooperation over time. Well, let me have you play out a specific scenario on that on that very front because when Justice Scalia died, the Republicans in the Senate almost instantaneously coalesced around the proposition that they were going to block President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland from the court. This week you had comments from John McCain suggesting that the GOP would continue blocking a nomination if Hillary Clinton becomes president, although he's, he's subsequently tempered that a little bit. That assumes, of course, that they have the numbers in the Senate. If that is the case, is that a tenable position for the GOP, Richard, to keep basically the eight-member court going indefinitely? Well, I think it's an extremely high-risk gain, and and what the Republicans are really saying is we would like somebody to essentially recognize that we're not going to let the next appointment take 5-4 and make it 4-5 the other way around. I think the best chance of getting a breakdown on this is if somebody, say, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg retired and hopefully in good health, they then put two nominations up, one Democrat and one Republican, and I think they would both sail through. I can't believe that the Democrats are willing to do that. 
of this because they don't want to essentially make sure there's another five or seven years in which there's a Republican control of the Supreme Court. So I think the Republicans will, if they control the Senate, be willing to hold firm unless she picks somebody closer to the Senate. I think Obama understood this. Merrick Garland is to the right of all the other four. And so in that sense, it is a compromise nomination. He's also not a young man. I think he's about 63. But the key point that the Democrats are playing is this. If you take the sort of 10 big issues that are before the uh, Supreme Court, whether it's guns or the Commerce Clause or abortion or affirmative action or corporate finance, whatever it is on the next moment, Garland will vote with the liberals on all five of those. And so the rest of it doesn't matter in some sense. That is, if you look at the Supreme Court, if there are, you know, say 80 cases a year, there are five or seven that really matter, and others on which there's a high degree of unanimity because they're technical issues on relatively small points, and the lawyers um, and the judges' academic skills, their judicial skills uh, kind of lead them to a consensus. So I think it's quite likely that they will uh, continue to play hardball. Uh, the court gets along tolerably well with only 4-4. Um, four, four. There have been a couple of cases, most notably cases like Friedrichs, which in fact have changed in virtue of the fact that there's a, a current impasse. Um, I think that it will get along reasonably well. The question is, have the Republicans violated any constitutional duty? The answer to that question is surely no. The president is under a duty to nominate. The Republicans are not under a duty to give a vote. And in fact, if you ask where did this deviation start, coming from. It was in the early years of the Bush 2 administration around 2002 and 2003 when the Democrats controlled the Senate and they just refused to schedule hearings for people like Miguel Estrada and the stated reason for doing so is he's too qualified and in fact may make a powerful impression on the court which would set him up for a Supreme Court nomination. I mean, if that's the kind of thing that you're talking about, are there no clean hands in this debate? As more and more Republicans have turned against Trump in the wake of these most recent allegations, he seems to have thrown whatever modicum of caution he once employed to the wind. And part of the new unshackled Trump that we've been seeing lately is this repeated insistence that the election is is rigged, which he seems to be arguing along two tracks really. One, that there will be outright voter fraud and two, that there's this sort of systematic effort by the media to defeat him. Um, how do you respond to those comments? Richard? Well, I mean, look, these are not idle charges. If you look at the media coverage, it turns out that Trump plays into the hands of the Democrats. He starts to talk about somebody's leg or a face or appearance, makes some desultory remark, and all of a sudden, all the WikiLeaks weak leaks with respect to Hillary Clinton and the FBI disappear from the front page. Uh, Newt Gingrich had a piece out today saying the ratio is 23 to 1. I agree with Gingrich that, in fact, improprieties in office, which the FBI thing talks about, is a much more serious business than sort of marital infidelities or indiscretions or inappropriate statements. And so what Donald Trump has to do is he has to cure in his own hands. He just stops talking about the kind of stuff um, which is more lurid and drives everything else off the front page page. But you're talking about a press which is probably 80 to 85 percent Democratic, and you expect to see a good deal of bias with respect to the kind of coverage that you're going to have. I mean, uh, all the major networks except for Fox are pretty hard liberal. It's a characteristic, I think, in the United States today that there aren't too many people in the middle. This is the great shift from Bill Clinton's Democratic government. He was sort of a center-right Democrat, and there are no center-right Democrats anymore. 
So it's highly polarized and the Republicans uh, turn out to have the small share, the short end of the stick in all of this thing. So the Democrats are going to put that. On the voting issue, I mean, look, you know, I keep reminding people I'm a professor of facts. I'm not a professor of uh, a professor of law, rather, not a professor of fact. Uh, but it's very clear that people like John Fund, whom I respect a great deal, have gone around and sort of gathered evidence that seems to be in direct contradiction to the rather mellow assertions by many de- Democrats, both in government and in academics, that this fraud thing is simply not a problem. My own priors on this is when the stakes are this high and the safety guards are that weak, fraud will start to take place. And I'm not talking about individual fraud. I'm talking about fraud rings and systematic frauds. Uh, the allegations on the Republican side that I've seen but have not verified, so I just want to say it that way, are that if you look at the people who vote in key states, it turns out that if you check them against people in other states of the exact same nates and birthdays, so that the implication is that they're just lifting data from, say, Oklahoma, and they're importing it into Virginia, and that would be massive both fraud of one sort or another. But I can only tell you what sounds like fraud. I haven't gone back and looked at the original documents and I'm not qualified really to evaluate them. So yes, I do think that there are these particular issues. On the other hand, he exposes himself to some extent um, when he seems like he's trying to intimidate public officials to say, well, don't bend for her, bend for me. Um, He sounds a little bit like a bully and that's not going to help his cause at all in these things. And it's going to create the dissonance inside the party when folks like Mike Pence get up and say, oh, he really doesn't mean what he says. You don't want to put yourself into that position. Uh, But I do think, in fact, this issue is a serious one because it's so clear how deep the divisions are inside the United States. I mean, even amongst the Republicans, what's so striking is that people who are normally close together on issues, say Bill McGurn and Brett Stevens, both of the Wall Street Journal, one is going to vote for Hillary and the other is a fierce Trump. I I mean, I tend not to want to vote for either of these people. It's quite clear that he's in some sense a very deep and divisive character. And the only chance I think he has of winning this election is to remain aggressive but not to be divisive by taking off the table the kinds of things that allow others to mock him personally and not deal with the substantive critiques he has of the privileged elites on which he attacks generally with a certain degree of effective ferocity. So I just want to be clear about one thing there, Richard. You you seem to suggest you definitely think that it's plausible that there is conceivably voter fraud within the system. Do you think it's plausible, as he seems to be claiming, that there's enough of it in the system that it could turn the outcome of what seems at the moment to be an election where the two candidates are pretty far apart? Well, if it's a five or six point gap, um, obviously vote fraud is not going to touch that. Um, if it's uh, you know a small Florida type situation, it's absolutely critical. Uh, you remember the disputed election of Al Franken in Minnesota, where the court stonewalled the recount. I believe um, it obviously made a difference there. But no, you're absolutely right. If the vote turns out to be fifty-one forty-four and the rest goes to minor parties, uh, nobody's going to be able to explain that they managed to steal four million votes in order to do it. But um, it depends on which poll you read. I mean, I read one poll. I don't believe any of them because they all go all over the lot. And what it suggests is every time that Trump Trump shoots off his mouth about one of these uh, sort of uh, sexual innuendos, midnight tweets, he loses votes. And the moment he shuts back up again, he kind of wins them. And so this particular poll um, on a continuously running basis actually had him ahead by two points. I think the Nate Silva has him pretty much down on these things. One of the things that's very clear 
is that there's a lot of volatility left in this kind of election. If he plays his best ground game and she continues to be passive, what will happen is he will then dominate the news and will make up ground. But if she remains passive and he acts like a jerk, then she's going to continue to gain by saying nothing. Let the other fellow hang himself. And that's the piece of advice he doesn't want to take. He gets so personal on this uh, that essentially he becomes his own worst enemy when he's got a lot of stuff about her, which is very potent. I mean, I did not spend most of my time in that column giving her any advice. And the reason is I think she's absolutely impervious to advice. There's nothing that I would want to say to her that she'd have the slightest interest in accepting. In fact, I regard her in many ways as an extremely dangerous candidate, precisely because she's so rigid on the one hand, and I think particularly after the FBI and similar scandals, so disreputable on the other. This is not a very happy election choice, I think, for anybody. So the last question that I'll put to you, Richard, we've only got a couple of minutes here, but the thread running through a lot of the Trump criticism, especially from the right, is that this is a guy who just at the end of the day is unfit for the presidency. So let's consider that for the moment as sort of an abstract proposition. We put him aside. We put Hillary aside. What makes someone fit to be president? What would you point to as sort of the necessary and sufficient traits that someone needs to have in order to do the job? Well, what you have to do is to display a certain degree of common sensibility under pressure. And so people are starting to ask themselves, well, you got this little red button which could launch a nuclear war. Is Mr. Trump going to get up at three o'clock in the morning and start to do something absolutely crazy? And, you know, he'd obviously say, I would never want to do such a thing like that. And people say, well, I'm not so sure. After all, he throws tirades all the time. She, of course, is exactly the opposite. She's the ultimate in self-control. And she never tips her hand in any one of these kinds of dubious ways. So she's not going to push the button. Well, if you lose on the button issue, it doesn't matter if you're going to win on welfare reform, frankly. And so what he has to do is to make it clear to people that he's not like that. Uh, but the sort of the scuttlebutt that keeps coming out is he has a dozen handlers who tell him pretty much what I tell him, and they have inside stuff, and he just listens to them for a day, and then he goes off again, and nobody can bring him back to the reservation. So that just kind of fuels the stuff with respect to fitness. With her, the charge is very different, but serious. Nobody trusts her. And there's a huge reason why it is that that's the case. But nobody trusts her because they think she's eager and greedy and disreputable and dishonest, but they don't regard her as rash and crazy. Um, so what happens is one of my friends put it, having listened to these two descriptions, and he meant this is an insult to both of them. He said, I think you ought to vote for the criminal i.e. Hillary Clinton, because she's going to be less dangerous than the madman. Now, those are two very pejorative characterizations. He has to work overtime, I think, uh, to avoid his. He's a newer quantity. He has some degree of motion. Although some of my friends say it's all over. He's done too much of this too, too often that he can't possibly change it. She can do very little to change her image because it's so long and so inbred in the public. And my guess is all the WikiLeaks and stuff that is going to come out will only make her behavior and that of her party officials worse than it is. So I think it's hers to lose, uh, but I don't think it's beyond possibility that he will win. And heaven knows what will happen if he gets into office because he's such an unpredictable sort. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.